entrepreneurs for rooting ourselves in love and purpose. How do we build a sustainable venture to enable people to flourish? Any use of money is simply to serve this God on whom we are completely dependent. The only legacy that I care about is Jesus Christ. I don't care about my legacy. Jesus could kneel down and clean the feet of his disciples. If he can do that, he is God. Who are we? Entrepreneurship is changing Asia from within. Leaders across industries are taking up their God-given call to create. We are excited to highlight the many stories of what God is doing throughout our region. We will also feature entrepreneurs from around the world who have important things to say, no matter where they call home. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Asia podcast. Wen, how are you? I'm fantastic. Very, very excited uh, as we record this one. You know, one of the neat things about my uh, estimable co-host, Wen, is that she's not only an incredible co-host for podcasts, as I think we all know now, but she's also a great, and I mean great, miniature golfer. And that's <laughs> something that we came to know Um when we were uh, last, when we brought together the Asia team, what do we have? Eight of us. We all got together and we played mm-hmm. mini golf and we were all within about a stroke or two of each other. Uh, but there is an outlier and you are four strokes better than everybody else. And uh, that was really impressive. I feel like that's going to be my only claim to fame being good at miniature golf, but you know what? I'll take it. I'm terrible at absolutely, all of sports. You should absolutely <laughs> take it. Uh, so when I think you've got an opportunity to use this platform of your preeminence and your your expertise in miniature golf in a similar way to what we might see like Michael Chang. Michael Chang, incredible tennis player, um, uh, competed at the highest level, bore witness to his Christian faith. We've got Jeremy Lin, and now mm-hmm. we've got Wen Lee Lim. There you have it. I really hope the listeners are just having a good laugh about this. I think this is a great insight to Henry's um, very funny character. You're a funny guy. I don't know about that. I don't know what's so funny about miniature golf. Miniature golf can be very, very serious. If you don't get the windmill just as it turns around right, um, you have found yourself, of course, on the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Asia podcast, where we actually do have fun, but we also are really serious about the way that God uses us in the marketplace for his glory as we look to create. Uh, we have um, a really special event tonight and a special podcast episode with somebody that that most of our audience is going to know. And most people, I would say, know about Grab, wouldn't you say, when? Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those companies that's impacted nearly everyone's lives uh, out here in Asia. Indeed. And um, Anthony has been a good friend for uh, for a while uh, at, in my role as managing principal at Sovereign's Capital which is a fund that invests in faith-driven entrepreneurs. We invested in Anthony way back when. And um, with time, of course, we birthed faith-driven entrepreneur, Asia and faith-driven entrepreneur out of um, this desire to not just invest in some of the great faith-driven entrepreneurs in Asia. Most people don't know that Sovereign's Capital actually got its start in Jakarta, our first Mm -hmm. investments there. Many of our greatest investments ever and what is now pretty much a global fund. Most of our best investments came out of Asia, but early on with Anthony. Um, and uh, it's part of our heartbeat, but one of the things we want to do with Faith Driven Entrepreneur Asia is to be able to be an encouragement to Faith Driven Entrepreneurs in Asia, uh, not just the ones that we might uh, have sovereigns invest in. We wanted to be an encouragement to every creative person in the marketplace. And uh, tonight's story with Anthony, I think is special because I think it's relevant for all of us. 
and um, I'm I'm grateful to be able to to release it through a future entrepreneur Asia. Yeah. Um, how did you guys meet in the first place? I mean, like, I know you said you started investing it, but I guess you're in America. Yeah. Um, and then how did you like? Who's Grab? I mean, to you guys, I think you, you only yeah. had Uber back then. Yeah, that's right. And um, so while um, I was in the states, we did have a team in Jakarta, and um, and I spent a lot of time I spent a lot of time in Singapore. So there's a familiarity generally with Grab. Mm. But I got introduced to Anthony through a good friend of ours, Josh Kwan. Josh is a great friend, runs a ministry called The Gathering. A bunch of Christ followers who get together and try to encourage and challenge each other with how they give and where they give in community. And Josh had said, "Hey." I know you care a lot about faith-driven entrepreneurs. There's this guy, Anthony Tan, uh, who's come out of Harvard and um, is really serious about integrating his faith with his business. And I think he's in the process of raising money. You should talk to him. And so I did. And that's that's how we got introduced to Anthony uh, relatively early on. He'd already raised, to be clear, he'd already raised institutional capital. We were not in on the ground floor, but we got in early enough. Um uh, to to see how God worked through him and Chloe, his wife, and the entire Grab team as they scaled the business. Mm. Um, it's quite a journey. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, Grab's always in the press and all that. And so um, with the interview that you did, just for our listeners, um, the interview coming up is actually been recorded earlier in 2020. Um, it, I think it was kind of like at the heart of the pandemic um, mm-hmm. and Henry did the interview and we wanted to share this as the first episode on the Asian podcast. Um, kind of what, what hit you most about that interview and even just in your journey with Anthony over the years? Well, I think it's the um, I think it's the universality of the story that Anthony has because there are two aspects I think that are really important for a faith driven entrepreneur. And I'm oversimplifying things here a little bit. One of the things that will come out during our time together, when is um, the fact that we had 12 marks. Faith driven entrepreneurship is a concept, is a decentralized movement, but we do have common DNA among all the member organizations and all the ministries that are part of our network, and it's. This common DNA is about a call to create an identity in Christ, uh, endeavoring to be faithful versus willful, uh, to be a steward versus owner, to be joyfully generous, et cetera. But there are two things that if I were to just kind of even just distill it down a little bit more that I think really come across in Anthony's story, which makes it universally applicable and relevant. And that is that he started Grab out of a desire to solve something he saw that was wrong and broken in the world. And I think that that is something that we are all called to as Christ followers. Uh, that is uh, is looking to the garden, looking to the way that things are meant to be in the new kingdom and working towards the bringing about of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So for us as Christians to be able to say, what would things look like um, in the new heavens and the new earth? And I think that God, and when we pray, our Father, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. I think that God actually issues an invitation for entrepreneurs to participate in the work of his kingdom coming under his power for his glory. We do that when we solve problems and fix things that are broken in the world. And Anthony talks about that, about what problems he saw in the in the taxi industry and the safety of both the riders and the drivers that drove him to think about solving that problem first, maybe even as a ministry before he even thought about it as a company. That's number one. The second one is that while we have this opportunity to be participant in the work that God is doing as he brings about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, 
we have an opportunity to do it in a way that bears witness to the king. And this is something that I think that Anthony does so faithfully. I remember uh, reading an article about him in TechCrunch, which is a big, I, I live and work in Silicon Valley. When I'm not playing miniature golf in Singapore, I, I, I live and work in Silicon Valley. And uh, TechCrunch is a big uh, tech rag out here. And they had an interview with Anthony. And at the end, they said, uh, when we ask Anthony about to what he gave credit to for the incredible growth of Grab, he didn't hesitate in giving credit to his faith in God. And that's really important. How are we used about solving, fixing what is broken? But how do we do it in a way that points to not just um, poverty alleviation, but also the eternal hope that we as entrepreneurs have in uh, eternity with God? And and He does that unapologetically, and He does it at great scale. He does that at you know potentially great harm to his reputation. Mm-hmm. A lot of secular investors were reading that article. This is before, well, of course, well, well before he went public. A lot of people that would otherwise maybe block or just think, hey, what, you know, why is this the zealot, you know, why, what role does he have to play in leading such a big organization that's secular and multicultural across different types of faiths in Southeast Asia? Mm. And yet he boldly did it. And that's something that is an, an opportunity, a challenge, if you will, for all faith-driven entrepreneurs. How do we winsomely bear witness to our faith? How do we do that with gentleness and respect and yet boldly and courageously? And I think that Anthony models that out. We hear a little bit about this in this interview. I don't want to spoil any more. I'm excited about getting into it. And what I got to tell you is we, we, we launched this ministry and this program together. I'm so excited about serving with you and so much of, uh, of what we learn about God through his word and the story that he's woven throughout the millennia, of course, is the power of story. And mm-hmm. we're going to do that together. You and I are going to unpack some of the great stories of faith-driven entrepreneurs in Asia with the hope that our listeners can think about their story. What does their story look like? How do they participate in the biggest story of all time? Well, we want to tell those stories together, and we're excited that we've got this audience. And uh, let's get started. Here we go. So just to introduce the episode, and I hope the listeners really enjoy this, feel encouraged from it. Um, You get to hear behind the scenes and Anthony's heart. I think that's always hard to um, get access to. And I think that's the privilege we've got in being able to do these uh, podcast episodes. Um, So God bless, and we'll see you at the next one. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us. Uh, we have a special guest. If you've listened to this before, you've heard me say that before. We've got a really, really special guest uh, today, a great friend of ours who we've known now for six or seven years and his faithful leadership in the space of faith driven entrepreneurship, who's joined us from Singapore. But I want to actually ask you a uh, question that just came to mind as we we're just getting ready. Anthony, I think that you probably have the best voice in Christendom. Have you ever considered a, a, a career in radio? Yeah, well, if Grab doesn't work out, I, you know, I, I could be a radio DJ. Uh, that could be, yes, you could. that could be an option. You have an incredible baritone voice. I mean, I, I'm just going to just listen to whatever you do going forward. As it turns out, you do have a full-time gig that probably is going to take you away from doing that anytime soon. You are running a really phenomenal company that God has blessed. You're making an incredible impact on culture. 
in just an incredible size and scale. And we want to talk about that, of course. But before we do that, we like to get an understanding about our guests and where they come from. What I want to start off with you, and since we got a chance to see your daughter, beautiful daughter, as we're just getting started here, tell us about your family situation in your family of origin before you talk about Chloe and the kids. Tell us about your journey growing up. Take us from the beginning, please. Wow. Uh, there's a lot to share, um, but I'll, I'll start with the most important part of my life, uh, my wife and kids. I've been very blessed uh, with a very Christ-centered wife who... I mean, she's probably the most, uh, my, my head of people said this to me yesterday. She said, you know, there are very few wives or husbands in the world who will let their husband work. So nearly every lunch and dinner over the past, I guess, two weeks have just been spent with either business meetings or grabbers just to keep topping up the social capital because, you know, everybody's working from home now. And clearly, you know, I couldn't have gotten here or we couldn't be here without her. Her name's Chloe, uh, C-H-L-O-E, and she's just been an incredible partner in my life. And then one of her philosophies that she's taught me is that uh, we come from a traditional Chinese family. She comes from a big family business, and I came from a family business before. And our traditional Chinese parents will historically say, hey, you know, you got to love your children so much and sometimes even forget investing in a marriage and my wife has taught me that mm. we show to our kids the love for each other so much that they are looking up and modeling that love right in the same way that we learn love from Jesus and how he loves the church and how he loves us so I've as you can tell I've learned a lot from her and clearly she's the neck that turns the head right I she makes me believe I'm the head in the house but actually she's just turning my head oh, wherever she oh, wants I like to that. go that's a great illustration and she's got the gift of hospitality too I can vouch for that I remember her taking us out and just ordering just an incredible stream of food and it makes me want to come back so please tell her that we say hi tell us about your family growing up where did you grow up what were some of the lessons you learned up and how does that influence your faith and your work today Wow. Um, you know, my mother, uh, fortunately, comes from a Christ-centered background. So we had her and my aunties. So even as a child, I remember, you know, at a very young age, I remember when I, I couldn't speak until I was about five, six years old. So, you know, my parents thought I, I was disabled in many ways. So, you know, they would bring a bell and they'll go, they took me to a doctor and they, they, they brought a bell and they put it ding, 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 ding on the right ear. And I look left and he went ding, ding, ding on the left ear. And I look right and the doctor was like, this kid is dumb. <laughs> so, <laughs> so most, most, little most, did you know. So, you know, my mom never gave up on me. My aunties never, they kept praying for me. And even when I couldn't speak, you know, every time they prayed, I would rush in into the group prayer, you know, shove my little head in there in the group prayer and just kneel and pray with them, even though I couldn't say a thing. So that was my background. My father, on the other hand, was extremely strong Buddhist. He built temples, literally funds temples we built in Taiwan. So, you know, it was living and growing up in this huge dichotomy that was taking place between, you know, and my father would push us to, and again, he pushed us because he felt that one, it was the right thing to do, you know, to sort of pay respects to, we come from a very Confucius very, if you imagine Taoist Chinese family where you had to pay respects to those that have passed, my 
great grandparents, my grandparents, you know, carry the joysticks. And I always felt very uncomfortable about that. And my mother would always say, look, you have to honor your father. But at the same time, you know, after this, you just pray for forgiveness. And then, you know, and I always had these arguments with my father about religion, as you can imagine. So much so that, you know, by my teenage years, it just, it kept chipping away. And, you know, I slowly fell away from the church. And, you know, in my university days, I was essentially an atheist. I became an atheist. You know, I studied Nietzsche. I studied Hegel. Not good things to study. Don't recommend it at all. And, you know, it messed with me and I fell away. Mm. And so what brought you back? Wow. You know, I was so blessed that when I went to HBS, actually, I would say even pre-HBS, there was some calling and I felt there was some pastors, some of my youth pastors never gave up on me. You know, they came, I remember a great momentous event where he called me for coffee at Starbucks and then he just wanted to just hear from me. I came back from university. He was sad that, you know, that I've fallen off from my path with Jesus and he just wanted to talk to me, wanted to hear me. He wasn't judgmental. He just tried to help me, but I still was very restrictive. Certain events happen in my family, you know, very dramatic events. And that helped me. And I saw those bad things that happened to my family members and they kept with the faith. And that was so encouraging to me because I could see, wow, even when you're hitting bottom low, you are still clinching onto his word even more so. So that was so encouraging. But even then I still wasn't really convinced. Then I went to HBS and at Christian Fellowship, you know, first two weeks of Harvard Business School, there's these events where you go and check out social clubs and all that. And, you know, people say you go to HBS, you obviously get an MBA. Some say you get an MRS, which is a wife, uh, a missus, right? <laughs> but, you know, in my case, I, I really found a great fellowship group that I have till today. So I had two brothers and Henry, I think we talked about this before, one in Hong Kong, one in San Francisco. And it was so similar to me. And, you know, one was also a party animal and I could reflect his weakness. It was a bit of putting the mirror, but because he never judged me, he was going through the same problems I was going through, fighting, you know, temptation, fighting pleasure, right? Fighting short-term gratification and not thinking about eternity. That really helped me reflect and grow. And then I had these two brothers, we called each other accountability partners until today. And then I had my, now my board director, Andy Mills, Henry, I think you know him as well, who's been just an amazing, he was, he was just at our board meeting yesterday. And he actually, you know, right from, if I remember it was, you know, month one at HBS, we just connected and he's always said, Anthony, you know, I'm here to mentor you. And he's been mentoring me since, uh, since 09 until now, 2020. What a great guy to have in your life. I've gotten to know Andy well, and he's got a new ministry that you might know about, Faith and Financial Services, where he's ministering to so many people in the financial sector in Boston and New York. And super guy. That's a great story. And I love the way that you've honored him and his faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to him. You know, uh, God places very special people along this journey, and you've got to embrace it and hold on to it. Helps you, yeah. helps you both grow.
Very, very cool. Okay. So I want to have you take us a little bit through the journey that led you to start Grab. And as I do that, I also want to set some perspective about how Grab is for those listening in the U.S. Most people in the U.S. will likely not have heard of Grab, although a good amount will. And part of that is because increasingly the press has covered you. And one of the things I love, by the way, when the press covers you, I think back to a TechCrunch article where it talked about why you did what you did or to what you credited your success. And they printed it and they said, you know, Anthony credits his belief in God, his faith in God as being the root for his success. And I love that you gave that witness and testimony. And actually, candidly, I love that they printed it. It just doesn't happen very often that knowing, you know, having talked to the press before and you try to bring it in about 10% of the time that it actually gets through. And, and this time it did. And it made a really big impression on the U.S. audience. But for those of you who did not see that article, another article I saw, I think it was 198 million downloads of the app, maybe maybe more maybe by now, 9 million drivers in 351 cities in eight countries, $14 billion valuation, big part of the SoftBank portfolio. Uber sold their business in Southeast Asia to you guys. It's a big deal. But take us back to the origin story. How did it all start? Where did the idea come from, et cetera? Sure. We started at HBS as well. As you can tell, a lot of good things happened from the school. In fact, Next week, I have a call. Dean Nitinoria is a good friend, and we catch up uh, every month. Uh, again, he's just been a great sense of guidance as well. You know, the school is set up such that it allows you to explore things that you've never been able to explore. And I remember one of the first cases it started with, I'll never forget it. The case was Lapdes, and it said, you can create a business that both helps society and can be economically profitable as well. And this concept of double bottom line or this concept where historically I thought things were very mutually exclusive. And, you know, I was taught by my father that you just try to make as much money as you can and in your 50s and 60s, you give back. But, you know, they don't mix that well together. But this case sort of opened up my mind. And then after that, I started taking classes with Professor Cash and uh, called Business at the Base of the Pyramid. I started taking classes on launching social enterprises. And that helped me foster this belief. And then and I found a great, great co-founder, Hui Ling, Ling, who's been with me for eight and a half years. And she and I, when we started it, and of course, Andy, Andy was there since the beginning, going into the business plan competition. Andy, even going through our PowerPoint slide deck uh, right from the onset. I'd love to see that original PowerPoint slide deck. I'd love, I think everybody would like to see a PowerPoint slide deck that led to the type of success that you've had. Um, but yeah, so take us through that. So you're in a business plan. By the way, can I assume that you won the business plan competition? Um, no, no, we, we, we got, we was got, Sam Bowie drafted ahead of you? That's a Michael Jordan joke. Sam Billy was drafted ahead of Michael Jordan. But yeah, I'm sorry. I interrupted your story and it's a good one. Oh, Keep no, going. No. We came up with a business plan. We got a, you know, one of the professors still laugh about it. Actually, Dean told me recently about it. I got a C in this paper. <laughs> and Dean says, you know, if she instead invested in it, she could have done quite well. Um, <laughs> You're not then, kidding. And then fast forward at the business plan competition, what happened was, and again, all the feedback, both from the professor was good that, hey, 
the first plan was building this fleet together and you know she really didn't like it because it was not asset light enough and she's right so you know i'll give her that and then we evolved it and we took that feedback we evolved it for the business plan competition and we said hey, it's a full virtual fleet and then we didn't get first we got second we got runners up because they said, hey, the Malaysia market's too small. You see, because we wanted to solve the problem for safety uh, for women. And that was mm. the key problem. Hui Ling and I said, we don't know if it would do economically very well, but we said we found a business model that could work. But most importantly, we can solve real safety problems for women. Hui Ling you know, had a lot of problems when she finished McKinsey hours very late at night. She would jump in a taxi. She would feel so unsafe and she would yeah. pretend that she's on the phone with her parents so that the drivers would feel that, wow, somebody's on the line. I can't take them and, you know, rob them, rape them. These happen all the time. And so that's what we wanted to just solve. That was the immediate problem we wanted to solve. So then the HBS business plan judges then said, Hey, Anthony, great idea, but Malaysia market's too small. If it was for, all of Southeast Asia could be different. And that's what pushed us right after, again, great feedback. You know, I always like those humbling, you know, tight slap on the face and then you, you know, wake up. Yeah. Well, Malaysia is actually, as it turns out, is a pretty big country. It's a pretty big market, but that is, is, you know, that's really stretching things. And obviously that that's worked out for you. That's fascinating. So just to recap, this was born not out of this sense of, oh my goodness, we're going to create probably the fastest growing company in all of Asia, in one of the top fastest growing companies in all of the world. This came out of a sense of wanting to solve a problem about women feeling safe in the world and in back of taxis. So tell us about some of the first steps for that as you'd go ahead and you've got out of HBS now, you've started to commercialize it. Talk to us about some of the early journey. Well, when we came out, I'll just go back to the HBS story very quickly. Once we came out, they gave us some money. Again, we got runners up. So we had money to buy some AWS credits to host and, you know, got some guidance on how to create a simple shareholder agreement. So that was very helpful. Then Ling came back with me and we just went straight in and we kicked it off. Ling could only work with me for a short while because she was bonded by McKinsey. So she had to go back to San Francisco. And then I continued and then, you know, through the grace of God, when I went back to California, I think it was for GGVC or one of those events. I think you guys know them as well. It was one of the venture events and I was meeting some other investors and walking out in Walgreens and I literally collapsed. Like I literally just collapsed on the ground and then my girlfriend, Chloe, and now my wife, she picked me up and she said, you can't go on like this. And I said, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. And then I collapsed throughout the day a, a number of times. I'll just black out. So then she then took me to the hospital. Ming Ma, who's our president, they just invested in us, uh, SoftBank. And then, you know, six months later or something along those lines. And him and Chloe rushed me to the hospital to ER. And they had to do a scan. They thought I got a stroke or a heart attack. So then Chloe was crying. And then she just spoke to Hui Ling, who I couldn't convince to come back. But, you know, my girlfriend, now wife, can do miracles uh, with the grace of God. And she spoke to Hui Ling. And then Hui Ling, 
after two years of us starting, she was back in California. Uh, she was then with Salesforce and then she heard Chloe's story. She was so worried about me. And she said, look, you know, if I don't come back, Anthony is probably going to kill himself the way he works. Um, and then she came back. So now she's been with me since. I want to talk. Uh, you've got this love of people that drove the reason for starting Grab. You're out there and you are burning the candle at both ends. You're innovating, you're creating, you're taking on money. Did you at any point in time along the way kind of start losing sight of this larger social ambition that you had, finding that you're losing yourself and just saying, this is just growing too fast and it's gotten away from me and I've lost the sense of purpose. And I know you well enough to know you've brought that back in. I want to talk about the four H's next and things, but what was it like for you during this time of scale? And did you feel like you're losing your way? Yeah. I mean, there are times, Henry, I'll be honest that, you know, I'm tempted to make the non-Christ-centered decision. There's been those times for sure. You know, I'm broken in so many ways and flawed. So, you know, that's why I surround myself. So, you know, those guys in my team are, are on the call, you know, Dom and Yiling are both Christ-centered individuals. And, you know, I surround myself with a lot of Christ-centered leaders as sort of accountability partners, right? They hear me, they hear me talk, talking to you right now. They'll call it out if it's BS. And, you know, we have that trust where we can, you know, respectfully call each other out. So I think having these accountability partners, not just in your non-work life, right? And in my fellowship, but also having it surrounding me. So in my board, you know, I have Andy Mills, I have my fellowship brother, OJ. I have, you know, other people who are Christ-centered individuals who are constantly praying for me at the board, right? Before board meeting, we have a prayer. You know, we have a Dom here, you know, holds these weekly prayer sessions across the company. So we have uh, Ealing, you know, once kicked off Alpha. Um, so we have all these things going on. In our workplace group, we have a great uh, Christian fellowship group. And again, you know, I remember uh, Peter, who's now CFO, Peter Oy, is also very strong. He was a deacon in his church. And he said, man, you know, you guys talk and walk Christ-centered values. He's quite new. He's been uh, less than six months. And he said, you know, Anthony, in the States, it would be so non-kosher to speak the way you guys do about yeah. Christ-centered values. Um, and, and you guys are so in your face sometimes. Um, and we try not to be, you know, we, we try to be as inclusive as we can. I remember Chin Yin, our head of people, and a very Christ-centered individual. You know, there was a big push about, hey, we should do things that are, you know, in the Valley, I'm sure you've seen this, where there's a big movement about, the rainbow day and, and all that. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I said, Hey, Jinian, you know, I, I feel torn. What should I do? And again, because she's just such a great loving person. She said, Hey, Anthony, um, you know, we talked, we discussed, and then she said, you know, let's create, oh, uh, until today we have this day called Lhasa, which is love all, serve all day. She said, regardless of whether you want to support gay freedom, whether you want to support a Buddhist temple, your mosque activities. If you're Christ-centered, you want to serve the church. Um, it's an additional day of paid leave throughout the year. Love all, serve all day. And you do whatever. You just let us know what you're going to do and go ahead and do it. So, you know, we could still keep to our Christ-centered values. 
and at the same time be inclusive. And, you know, again, I have my amazing leadership team to thank. So that's fascinating. Yeah. If I heard you right, you have an alpha course at Grab. Did I hear that right? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's still around, but... Um, but you've had one. And so that's yeah. that's fascinating oh. to me because you're unapologetically Christ-centered. You're getting on a program with millions and millions and millions of listeners worldwide, as is the Fate of an Entrepreneur podcast, of course. And you are very serious about your Christian faith. And yet you also have this love-all, serve-all concept. And so because you serve in a, a number of different countries that have a Muslim context to them. So Christ-centered and yet at the same time affirming them and allowing them to do these different things in this one day. That's a really interesting balance. And I think that that's something that a lot of our entrepreneurs can be inspired and encouraged by. Most of the listeners to this podcast are not in serving and with lots of employees in a majority Muslim or Buddhist context. And yet you have this faithful presence where you're able to talk about why you do what you do and yet also not judge them, but affirm them where they are in their faith walk as well. It's a really interesting balance. It's awesome, awesome to hear. Uh, Henry, I can't take credit. It was Chin Yin, our, our head of people's idea. I just ran with it. and, and, and oh, I'll take yeah. credit for it. It's awesome. Okay, so I want to move on then to the four H's. You've got this way of loving your employees, and I want you to roll in. By the way, I'm, I was too glib there. Super important that you've been able to surround yourselves with leaders that are able to help you stay grounded, which is hard to do when you've got a valuation like you have and the, and the growth that you have. I'm hearing your emphasis on mentors, but also surrounding yourself with great people. And it's great to hear that some of these ideas that come from them. Talk to us about that, the four H's, because there's this good bridge into these principles that you have that feel a lot like some of the work of Patrick Lencioni, but you've made it your own through these four H's. Tell us what they are, please. Yeah. So citing from Matthew twenty five forty, you know, whatever you did for one of the least of the brothers of mine, you did for me, you know, and I always go back to the story of, and I can share it in this context and I've shared it at church before, you know, Jesus was just the most bar none, incredible leader of all time. And he could kneel down, take his waist cloth and clean the feet of his disciples, right? Like if he can do that, he is God. Who are we? So that servant leadership is so powerful, right? Again, I, you know, every day I just pray, God, Jesus, I just want to be more like you. And I think that has taught us so much. So from that story, and you can just imagine it, God kneeling and washing the feet of his disciples. Who am I as a CEO? How do I serve our grabbers? How do I serve our customers? How do I serve our governments? How do I serve society? And we asked ourselves this, and again, it was another Christ-centered individual at Grab. He's still at Grab. He was part of my office before. And he came up with a concept and again, I just took it and I ran with it. And I said, guys, we had all these other values, you know, it was like 10 or seven things. I said, you know, let's just, let's just get rid of it. And let's just simplify it to these four H's. And the first H is a H for hunger. That we just know that, look, the truth is uh, we're not the smartest guys in the room. And we just got to outwork other guys on our right and on our left. And 
you know, I've lived that all my life that I, I wasn't very smart, as you know, when, you know, I was born, I couldn't even speak, but I just, you know, I, I, I just worked really, really, really hard until I collapsed, um, literally. Um, so I don't advise to, you know, work that crazy. And that's why Chloe has come into my life and really added this work-life harmony in my life. But that hunger to really just go all out, hunger to just fight for what you believe in, and then the heart to serve society. And I always say, hey guys, you know, are we willing to go on our knees, you know, and just truly serve society? And if you have that, and again, these are the DNA of grabbers. That means if you don't have it, these four H, you can't be promoted. Actually, we also let go of people who don't fit our culture bar. And then obviously we promote and we also double down on that. Now, can we do more of it for sure? Then there's honor, uh, the third H, which is honor. And do we honor our commitments? Do we honor our word? When we sign something, do we honor it? That's so important because people can talk, people can give all kinds of promises, but in the end, do they go through with it? And do they honor their word? And then the last is humility. Do we have the humility to know that, look, I know that um, we are in this constant world of move and change. Can I take feedback? You know, can my, my office, you know, my teammates here, uh, some on this call, some outside of this call, you know, just give me frank feedback so that I can improve. And can we give each other feedback? We know that we are just work in progress and, you know, we believe in this idea of Gaizen or this idea of constant improvement. And do we have the humility to take feedback regardless of level? You know, recently I got feedback from, you know, many, many levels away from me. Last night I was with other grabbers taking them out for dinner and a merchant was giving me feedback that, hey, you know, he made some food and the driver didn't come. And, you know, I, I was there just apologizing to the merchant, but just getting feedback all the time and having the humility to take that feedback to improve. Hmm. Hey man, Anthony William here. That's uh, it's so good. I, I love how you talk to about we hire, fire, promote, you know, on these values. I, I think I see a lot of companies that have taken time to write these values down and they don't integrate them that way. And you, and you ask how they're laid out. It's like, well, you know, they're kind of on the wall and we talk about them every now and then, but I don't think I've seen them really mean much unless they're really put into practice. And you can tell people at their review, you know, this is the ranking system, no matter what else you did, it has to fit into this. And, and that's just inspiring. And I hope our listeners can hear that. Um, I, I'd love to shift this to timestamp this a little bit. We're in kind of an unprecedented time right now. You know, if you're listening to this, we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic and, you know, that's a, that's a tough time for everyone. And I would love to hear a little bit about maybe two different things. One, how, how you've cared for people, including your employees and how you've had to go through that. And then two, just your business model, which I imagine had to change quite a bit or innovate around things that you didn't have to before. Uh, how have you done that at such a scale and across different countries and all types of things like that? Yeah. So just to go back, William, to your point, I think, first of all, can we do more of culture? Uh, we can, and we are far from where we need to be. And, you know, we have Again, great teammates who keep pushing that. My co-founder pushes on culture uh, and reinforcing this 4H a lot more. So we are a big work in progress. Now, 
with regards to the, this pandemic, this crisis that we're living in today, in Southeast Asia, we saw that COVID-19, it just took such a impact. I mean, it, it bore such a uneven social impact. So Southeast Asia, you know, close to 80, 90% of the economy is driven by a lot of informal work. Right? There's a lot of uh, it's not formalized. There's a lot of, I mean, you can go to a market today, a wet market today, and you see children uh, working in, in wet markets, right? Some are just children of, of their, you know, of their father, mother, and little shop. But there's so much informal economy. And, you know, when there's no safety net for, for, for our folks, what we saw that COVID-19 basically did was when they went into lockdowns, and I talked to a lot of ministers about this, the governments were going through this dichotomy or this, this poll that was taking place, which was, do we provide economic livelihood or do we save lives? And because, you know, it's poor in this region. Outside of Singapore, it's, it's actually quite poor. And... You know, especially in, we're talking about tier three, tier four cities in Indonesia. Henry knows this very well. Poverty is, is, is real. And, you know, the government had to close economies. So when that happened, literally people, I mean, I know of stories, you know, I didn't see it because I'm here in Singapore, but I know in my friends in Manila telling me that the jeepney drivers, jeepney drivers, they're not our drivers, but, but the drivers of a local mode of transport in Manila becoming beggars, beggars on the street, right? So that, that's what the toll that has taken place. Now, what have we done? This is where our focus has really doubled down on. How can we help those most impacted by the crisis? So we have gig workers. We have healthcare workers and we have informal economy workers. So first on gig workers, what we did was we scaled our food and grocery deliveries. That scaled, you know, by, by several X. Actually, that saved the company. Uh, we were very, very blessed. It just, as economies came to a standstill because of the lockdown, essentially transport dropped by 90% in some cities. And 90%, imagine if we just had mobility, you know, the, the economies that went in lockdown, we lost, you know, close to 90% of our business in some cities. But the food business just, you know, it went, it was the perfect hedge, if you may. And because our drivers, you know, whether they were car drivers, the motorbike drivers, a lot of them, and we lobbied and partnered, lobbied and partnered with the government. And they said, okay, we'll allow your car drivers even, not just only your motorbike drivers that took, you know, in Indonesia, our motorbike drivers also takes food and also delivers e-commerce. But in Singapore, for example, car drivers weren't allowed. And again, you know, all glory to him. We won and the government allowed our drivers to also send and deliver food and e-commerce deliveries. So that just popped. So our drivers then had lots of work. You know, it clearly didn't solve all their problems for sure, but we were able to move over 150,000 drivers in a very short period of time. I remember in one of our cities, we moved 80,000 drivers in two days. So from just moving people to moving food and e-commerce deliveries. 
So that was helping out what we call our micro entrepreneurs, drivers, guys like that. Number two, our other set of micro entrepreneurs are merchants. Uh, some are very, very small. Some own literally a porridge store by the side of the street all the way to the McDonald's and Shake Shacks of the world. So we spend a lot of time focusing. And again, we partner governments to digitize a lot of these small businesses. So in a very, very short time, again, in the past three to four months, we onboarded over 80,000 new merchants. And these are new merchants. If you include that number of outlets, you're talking, you know, some had three outlets, you know, even though they're small entrepreneurs, they're three outlets, you know, that's 240,000. So outlets and people we provided and all the await stuff, you know, because the stores were closed at the front end, the kitchens was open, they send their staff to the kitchens to pump out food for us to deliver. And then after the third, you know, was whether it was our customers delivering food, but more because they were in lockdown and, and groceries, but all the way to hospitals. So we again partnered governments. So I just had dinner with the CEO of one of the largest hospitals in Singapore, and he's also, uh, the Center of Infectious Diseases also reports to this hospital. And he said, you know, because 70% of cases in Singapore was handled by this hospital. And so it was very sad, you know, thank God our team knows this. I didn't know this, but a lot of people didn't even want to take the nurses to the hospital because the drivers were like, holy cow, you know, they have COVID. Right. So they didn't get the love and care. And this is a time where you want nurses to the hospitals. So our country had worked with the nurse association, worked at the hospitals. We created something called Grab Care. And in Singapore alone, over 15,000 driver partners signed up to ferry hospital workers to and from work. In Indonesia, we delivered thousands and thousands of COVID testing kits and we've created a joint venture to provide telemedicine to all our customers in, in, in Indonesia. Wow, it's an amazing story of so many things that you were able to, to figure out, right? I mean, I know uh, you said it quickly, but for our listeners, you lost 90% of your business. I mean, that is a very large number, you know, and you were still able to find an opportunity and work with your team and your team was on the lookout for how can we, and so you, you one, lost your business, you saved your business, and two, you saved a ton of merchants that likely would have gone under without the innovation. So it saved your business, it saved their business, just a, a beautiful story of sort of what's going on there. And, but also just like you were at the forefront of your business being impacted by this pandemic and, and were able to come through it. And unfortunately, we have to move towards our close right now. Yeah, I think we have like 87 different twists and turns we could go down and maybe we'll beg somebody for more of your time some other time. But we love to close our time with just asking where you might be in God's word. And that could be this season, maybe, that he's put something on your heart. It could be this morning. Maybe as you woke up today, God gave you a word from his scripture. Uh, we believe it's living and it's fun to see how God's word transcends our guests and our listeners to continue to teach us. Well, if you ask me, one verse that is really stuck with me is Micah 6, 8, you know, how we honor, how we serve humbly, you know, we've lived by that. Um, and I think that's something that I have to just keep doing. I frankly have felt that it's been really tough on many, right? Um, and, you know, if I can just say the whole verse, you know, what, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with your God. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and have listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. You can find fellowship with other like-minded leaders by joining a foundation group. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with peers in your area or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected with us by signing up for our monthly newsletter at asia.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible with the special help of our team and friends across the movements. Thanks to everyone leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your area. We are grateful for you. Hey, everyone. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed, and this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Thanks for listening.